This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. On this season of Mystery and Murder, we bring you a story so wild you couldn't make it up if you tried. Or could you? This is Dr. Phil diving deep on the case of Sherry Papini. You're listening to Supermom Missing. Sherry Papini is back home with her husband and two children after what she says was weeks of pure torture at the hands of two mysterious female kidnappers. She has been checked out and treated at the hospital, and she has cooperated with police and told them her story of the horrors she faced. But remember, At this point, all of us, the public, have been invested in this story for weeks. The missing, beautiful mom vanished and then showed up battered and bruised and chained. And we all still don't know what really happened to her. She has only privately told detectives, well, told her husband with detectives there, what went on in those weeks she was missing. And detectives plan to keep that info close to the vest. Now, that can be frustrating sometimes for those of us in the public, but they do that for a reason. Police are faced with the challenge of balancing transparency and openness with not compromising their investigation. They have to hold things back sometimes so they can vet tips. And They don't want to tip off potential perpetrators by giving them too much information about what they know. Now, I'll talk more about that later, and you'll see why right away. But police do try and balance transparency and openness with protecting certain elements of the investigation that they need to leverage and separate out qualified tips from people that are just wanting to talk to the police. But despite their wanting to keep a lid on things, Keith, Sherry's husband, makes a move. He decides to reveal Sherry's story of terror and survival to the media. Now, there are going to be a lot of questions about why he did this and what the motivation was. But first, let's just talk about what happened. Looking back, you're going to have to wonder if maybe Sherry encouraged him to do this. Because remember, her old friends and boyfriends say if there's one thing they know about Sherry Papini, it's that she loves attention. She loves the spotlight. She loves to be in the center of everyone's mind. Keith decides to give a statement to Good Morning America. Or maybe Sherry decided for Keith to give a statement to Good Morning America. But nonetheless, he did. And here, verbatim, is what he had to say. Quote, 
The first thing I would like to address is the overwhelming amount of gratitude our entire family has for the thousands of people that have been on this tortuous journey with us. He then goes on to thank a list of offices and individuals that helped look for Sherry. Then back to his statement, he says, Thank you for the extremely generous, anonymous, as well as named donors all over the world who selflessly gave to our family. Thank you to the many incredible human beings that have never known Sherry that facilitated in sharing our heartbreak across the globe. Sherry has always captured my heart, and it is no surprise that she has captured the hearts not only through the country, but throughout the world. Thank you. Truly, immensely, sincerely, and with my entire heart. Now, had he stopped there, you might have understood why they wanted to come forward and thank people. But he didn't stop there. And that's why I have always been suspect that maybe he didn't write this statement or certainly had a lot of help with writing this statement because he goes on. He says, Secondly, we live in a nation of free speech accompanied with an era of technology that provides immediate gratification. This is a double-edged sword. I'm grateful for this system, as it is what spread my wife's face quickly throughout the world, gaining the attention of thousands. The unfortunate side is that some people have been sitting in angering, expectant positions, waiting for the gory details. Rumors, assumptions, lies, and hate have been both exhausting and disgusting. Those people should be ashamed of their malicious, subhuman behavior. We are not going to allow those people to take away our spirit, love, or rejoice in our girl found alive and home where she belongs. I understand people want the story, pictures, proof that this was not some sort of hoax, plan to gain money, or some fabricated race war. I do not see a purpose in addressing each preposterous lie. Well, apparently he does see a purpose. Or she does see a purpose because they are addressing what they refer to as each preposterous lie. But he goes on. Instead, may I give you a glimpse of the mixture of horror and elation that was my experience of reuniting with the love of my life and mother of our children. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Now, before I go on, let's take a look at what he said so far. He has said that people have been sitting in anger and that there are rumors, assumptions, lies, and hate, and that those people should be ashamed, but we're not going to allow those people to take away our spirit. And I understand that they want the stories, pictures, and proof, 
that this was not some sort of hoax. And I don't see a purpose in addressing that, which he just did. And he understands they want the gory details, which he, he sits in judgment of. But then he says, nonetheless, I'm going to give you a glimpse of the mixture of horror and elation that was my experience of reuniting with the love of my life and mother of our children. So while he poo-poos that and judges those people, he's now going to give them exactly what he says they're pining for. He goes on, Nothing could have prepared me for what I was about to see upon my arrival at the hospital, nor the details of the true hell I was about to hear. The mental prison I was in over the past three weeks was shattered when my questions of my wife's reality became known. The officers warned me to brace myself. My first sight was my wife in a hospital bed, her face covered in bruises, ranging from yellow to black because of repeated beatings, the bridge of her nose broken. Her now emaciated body of 87 pounds was covered in multicolored bruises, severe burns, red rashes, and chain markings. Her signature long blonde hair had been chopped off. She had been branded, and I could feel the rise of her scabs under my fingers. She was thrown from a vehicle with a chain around her waist attached to her wrist and a bag over her head the same bag she used to flag someone down once she was able to free one of her hands. Sherry was taken from us 22 days and suffered incredibly through both intense physical agony and severe mental torture. My reaction was one of extreme happiness and overwhelming nausea as my eyes and hands scanned her body. I was filled with so much relief and revulsion at once. My Sherry suffered tremendously, and all the visions swirling in your heads of her appearance, I assure you, are not as graphic and gruesome as the reality. We are a very private family. I have to read that again. We are a very private family who do not use social media outlets prior to this grotesque tragedy. My love for my wife took precedence, and it was clear we had to be exposed in ways we never would have been comfortable with. So please have a heart and understand why we have asked for our privacy. This will be a long road of healing for everyone. Ultimately, it was Sherry's will to survive that brought her home. Thank you. Now, we don't know who wrote this statement. We don't know for a fact that Sherry participated in constructing this. But we do know some things about her personality and her traits that might suggest that she wanted this story to be out there. We do know contemporaneously that her neighbors were very skeptical. Some just outright said they didn't believe her. 
Did she feel a need to answer back, to respond to that? There were people on social media, strangers they didn't know, people in the press that were questioning all of this at this point. We do know that there was history coming out. In 2003, there had been police reports of her kicking in a door at the house. We do know that in September of 03, when she was 21, that she took some money from her father's account. She later gave it back, but that triggered some police activity. We do know later that year, in December, she supposedly, according to her mother, harmed herself and blamed her mother for doing it. Very manipulative. We also know that there were reports that in 06, she supposedly had planned faking her own kidnapping. Some of this was out by then. She knew what was out there and certainly soon to be discovered. So it seems like she might have had a good motive to try and fortify her story. Either way, he certainly didn't do this against her will. And when you read back through this, this is prose. Now, I've read a lot of victim statements. I've read a lot of family statements written on behalf of victims. And I have to say, this is the only one that I ever felt like read like a novel rather than an emotionally driven statement. This one looked like it had been written and polished and worked on turns of phrase and, in fact, was quite contradictory within itself, as I pointed out. I just have to say, I don't believe that Sherry didn't have a hand in writing this and wasn't responding to criticisms that she was aware of that were either present or coming her way, and she certainly knew it. And we have to remember, there was one person for sure, that knew what really happened, and that was Sherry Papini. If you know what had happened, then you can read this with a very different eye. The other thing I know for sure is I'll guarantee you investigators were not happy when this statement was put forth. It's now December 1st. Keith Revelations prompt a news conference from Shasta County Sheriff's Department with an update on the case. They don't really have much choice. They have to. Keith forced their hand. They can't let him be out there talking about her being held captive with the kidnappers on the loose. They don't feel like they can be silent, I'm sure. They have to give the media and the community something. And despite surely not being happy about it, Privately, the sheriff said the details Keith released might well have harmed the investigation. And maybe he's right if this had been a real case. I don't know. This can be tricky. Look, I've been covering these criminal cases for over 20 years now. And I understand that when people have been victimized and there are all these narratives and all this speculation out there, People sometimes want to share their stories, and the public wants to hear their stories. 
And sometimes investigators are always telling them not to tell their story. They worry about the investigation. They worry about the trial. But sometimes that can take years. And as I say, they have to balance transparency and openness with compromising the investigation. But they also have to be aware that they're talking about human beings here. Sometimes people's lives can be so impacted, their mental and emotional adjustment can be so impacted that they need to have a voice. They need to speak about what has happened. So while they may not want people saying things about their investigation, which I get, sometimes they can give messages through the media that can be very helpful. Case in point, I one time interviewed a guy named Mark Castellano, whose girlfriend Michelle had gone missing in Houston. He agreed to do an interview, and he clearly was somebody that looked suspicious. When I talked to him, I caught him in lie after lie after lie. These were factual lies, not just it was apparent he was lying, just factual lies, and leaned on him really heavy. Sure enough, before our process with him was over, he confessed to us on the telephone. And Houston PD called saying, hey, he's here at the station confessing to someone. We're watching him on camera, and we can hear him. He's confessing to someone. Yeah, it was us. He was calling and saying, hey, I, I don't want to lie anymore. I feel tremendous pressure, and I know that <laughs> you all know I'm lying, and I can't take it anymore. So he told us what he had done. He told us where the body was. He told us everything. Crime solved. So sometimes it can really work to your benefit, particularly if you have somebody that has experience in cross-examining suspects. In any event, the sheriff's office holds a press conference, or as the media refers to it, a presser. The media gathers to hear the info, and then they run with it. They reveal to the public that over the last two days, Sherry Papini was interviewed at an undisclosed location. They reveal that during the interviews with Sherry, she described the sequence of events surrounding the case and described her assailants as two Hispanic female adults. That is almost never heard of. You never hear of kidnappings being accomplished by two female assailants. She said they concealed their faces and spoke in Spanish most of the time. They also say she was cooperative and courageous during the interviews. But behind closed doors, detectives were picking up on inconsistencies in her story. They interviewed Sherry immediately after her abduction as she spoke about her alleged ordeal to her husband. So they were kind of in a group speak here. Remember, she was saying she was suspicious about talking to police officers. She was willing to talk to her husband with them present. But then they brought her back in to tell the story again. 
a very common practice with interrogators. They told her, look, some of the questions might seem dumb or repetitive, but they said, don't worry, there's a reason we're asking them. And yes, there certainly was a reason they were asking them. There are not versions of the truth. There are not versions of the truth. When you are fabricating a story, you have a lot to remember. When people have made up a story, when people are telling a lie, they construct it sequentially. It goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G. If you ask someone to tell you that story, but to relate it to you in reverse order, not A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but G, F, E, jump to A, go back to C, it's like a waiter that has memorized the specials of the day. They memorize them in order. If you interrupt them, they often have to start back at the top. Why? Because they're dumb? No, they're not dumb. They're pretty smart to (laughs) memorize them to begin with. But one triggers the next, which triggers the next, which triggers the next, which triggers the next. If you interrupt them in the middle, they typically have to go back to the top. Or if you ask them to give them to you in reverse order, it's like, uh, that's not how I remembered them. It's very difficult. If you think I'm kidding, ask your partner, your spouse, or your child to do something so well-known as the alphabet, but have them start in the middle. Have them give it to you in reverse order. Jump around. Have them start at F, then go to Q. Jump back to B. Jump around, and you'll find it's very difficult. So when they're interrogating a suspect, they'll get them to give it to them out of order. And when they do, they lose the details and they start changing them. Sure enough, they found inconsistencies in her story. And what I'm going to tell you is directly from the police investigation files. In her previous interview in the hospital and during the ambulance ride, Papini stated that she was branded as punishment for her first escape attempt. She had pulled a board off the window. So she could go out through the window. They caught her, were upset, and branded her as punishment. In those same interviews, she also stated that her abductors told her that her buyer wanted her branded. Detectives tried to get clarification from Sherry and said it was their understanding that it was after this first escape attempt that she was branded. Now, Sherry explained that no, the burn occurred during a later punishment. Detectives continued to ask Sherry to explain when and how she was branded and why she had said it was punishment for her first escape. She now changed the story and explained that the branding was not punishment trying to escape through the window, but for making too much noise. Then she asked the detectives if her memory could have been disrupted by being tased. And detectives explained, no, that's not how that works. Tasing would not affect your memory. Well, Sherry didn't mention being tased during her abduction in her subsequent interviews. That didn't affect memory, so she just dropped that out. 
Sherry described how she tried to exercise every day so she could keep a routine while she was in captivity. Detectives said, well, you got branded for making too much noise. So how could you exercise without making noise? I mean, you're chained. Chains are noisy. Wouldn't that alert your captors? And she stated, no, no. She would just pull the cable tight and tuck it between her legs. Sherry's abductors provided her with a bucket, initially described as a trash can, for her to use as a toilet. She originally just offered up the detail that the bucket had kitty litter in it when she arrived. Later, she suggested to her abductors that they put kitty litter in the bucket. Quote, I tried to say, you know, if you line it with a bag and put kitty litter in it, it will probably make your job a little easier. Her abductors took her advice and lined the bucket with kitty litter. Well, that was different than what she originally said. And then she stated that she washed her underwear in the shower, but later stated that she kept her underwear on while she showered and only had a few seconds to wash herself. She also first claimed that the older abductor stood at the door while the younger abductor stood behind her while she showered. In a subsequent interview with the FBI forensic interviewer, she stated that the older abductor was walking back and forth while she showered. In the hospital and ambulance interviews, she said that the older abductor told her that her buyer was a cop and told her this while she was showering. Well, was she standing by the door? Was she walking back and forth? Or was she talking to her while she was showering? Later, Sherry says the younger woman said, we sell you and buyer is cop. Now, was it the older abductor who said it or the younger abductor? This is getting really inconsistent. She also described in detail how she fought with the younger abductor and cut her foot really badly in the process. But her husband saw a photo investigators had of the mark on her foot. It didn't fit what she described. Sherry knew Keith had seen this image and later stated that when she stepped onto the edge of the tub and flung herself towards the younger abductor, she scraped her foot on the bottom of the sink along the baseboard of the vanity. She now says the scrape bled a little bit but was not dripping. She admitted that she exaggerated the incident in an earlier interview, and apologized that she, quote, pumped up the description. And here's one more inconsistency. In prior interviews with law enforcement, she discussed that her abductors read her articles and told her that nobody believed her and that law enforcement was involved in her abduction. And when asked about this again, she said that her abductors did not read her any articles or show her any news coverage, but instead told her while cutting her hair, quote, no one's going to find you. They don't believe you. They think you just ran away. The police are not looking for you. End of quote. Trust me. Investigators are not missing any of this. 
Not a single beat, not a single inconsistency. They are clocking every detail she's changed, no matter how small, whether it's an embellishment, an omission, an addition. But they finish their interviews and send her home to recuperate. And while she's home, recovering, they keep digging. Now, while she's at home, recuperating, she's continuing to program Keith with her story. She's constantly revealing little tidbits about her time in captivity, and according to him, she's having almost a PTSD reaction to certain scenarios. For example, on March 31st of 2017, Keith contacted the FBI and gave them the following information. He said Sherry told him that the room where she was kept had paneling similar to beadboard on the bottom half of the wall and drywall on the top half. She described the carpet as orange-colored and shaggy. And Keith provided photos of the drawings he made with Sherry of the room and the device used to chain her. The chain was attached to a pole in the closet in the room. Now, on June 5th of the same year, so we're talking now about three months later, he contacts the FBI and says that he and Sherry recently traveled north to Ashland in Medford, Oregon. Said she had no problem driving north, didn't react negatively. But while in Oregon, they went to a Dick's Sporting Goods store. And while they were in the gun section, he said everything was fine until she saw a display of revolvers. And when she saw the revolvers, she shut down and got scared. He said she pointed to a black Ruger revolver and said, that's what it looks like. He said she was seeing a plastic surgeon to have the burns on her arm repaired with laser treatments. And during one of the treatments, Sherry smelled the burned hair from the laser and, quote, shut down, and the treatment had to be stopped. We're now talking seven, eight months after her return. So... I'm sure Keith's thinking, look, if she's making this up, she's made a big commitment to the ruse because she's carrying this on for months and continuing to show reactions. Now, police aren't really engaging with her that much. She's doing this with Keith, and Keith is calling them, thinking he's helping. He says Sherry wants to sit down with a sketch artist. So she goes in and in detail creates sketches of these two Hispanic women that supposedly abducted her. Now, at this point, months have passed. Authorities smell a rat. But the public doesn't know what, if anything, they figured out yet or if there is a motive for what it could possibly be. Clearly, the public, like the police, 
aren't completely buying this narrative of sex trafficking, victim randomly let free, that doesn't ring right for several reasons. First off, there's a lot of risk to abducting a woman. Why would you then just let her go? Secondly, they're out driving around a rural road. This is not a target-rich environment. If you're looking to abduct someone, why would you just go be driving down a country road thinking, hey, there might be an attractive blonde running along here someday. That doesn't make sense. You go to a target-rich environment where you can see people. You think, well, maybe they saw her jogging one day. She didn't jog regularly. It just doesn't make sense. People start speculating, was this a random abduction? Or did they come for her? Or maybe it didn't happen at all. Now, people, as they tend to do these days, start being citizen sleuths. They like to sit at home, get on the internet, start putting in different words and names and digging around. And they uncover something significant. They uncover what can only be described as a racist blog written in 2003 by someone using Sherry's maiden name and claiming to be from her hometown. The bizarre and racist post showed up on a white supremacist website and goes into great detail about the author getting into a violent physical fight on more than one occasion with Latinos during high school. Now, if Sherry was the author, she would have been 20 or 21 at the time. So she would have been a few years out of high school writing about what happened when she was in high school. The blog post, which was entitled Keep Walking, was credited to Sherry Grafe. Now, that was her maiden name. It details how the writer grew up in Shasta Lake, California, was a good athlete, but was picked on in high school by a group of Latinos. Here's a quote. I used to come home in tears because I was getting suspended from school all the time for defending myself against the Latinos. The chief problem was that I was drug-free, white and proud of my blood and heritage. This really irked a group of Latino girls, which would constantly rag and attack me. Now, the Post detailed how she fought the girls and how it took three full-size men to pull me off of her. I broke her nose and split her eyebrow. It goes on to say that it was titled Keep Walking because her father told her how proud he was of her after the fight with the other girls and that she kept walking when her shin was split open as a result of the fight. The Post concluded with, quote, Being white is more than just being aware of my skin, but of standing behind skinheads, who are always around in spirit as well, and having pride for my country. Now, Sherry's dad told People Magazine Sherry did not write that letter. Some punks wrote that letter. A friend of Papini's agreed, saying, It was not her. It is not who she is. It was posted online, and Sherry tried to get it taken down, but they refused to. 
She says she never found out who did it. Keith also spoke to the media and disputed any speculation that Sherry's abduction was some fabricated race war. He also said that rumors, assumption, lies, and hate have been exhausting and disgusting. Detectives told Sherry it appeared the post was originally written on a MySpace page. So they asked her, did you have a MySpace account? Her response was, she didn't remember. He told detectives that prior to her kidnapping, she had hired an attorney to try to have the post removed. She said she believed someone else had written the post using the name Sherry Grafe and described the post as awful. Now, I've watched a lot of interview footage of Sherry Papini, and I'll confess that I tend to look at things that maybe others don't look at. I look at people's cognitive functioning. I listen to their sentence structure. I watch their recall, their working memory, how they put sentences together, look for hold and no-hold functions in memory. Do they remember things from way back, remember contemporaneous events? And I'm asking myself, are there signs that she wouldn't remember whether or not she had a MySpace account? And you have to ask yourself, is that something that a normal person, having not had some kind of neurological event, some kind of head injury or mental, emotional, physical trauma, not remember? Particularly when... At the time, MySpace was a big thing. It was kind of the big thing. And it wasn't just an event. It was a process. You had to register. You had to sign up. You had to enter information. And then you used the account over and over and over. So it wasn't like a a one-time thing where you either pushed a button or you didn't. There was a multi-step process to do this. But she didn't remember if she had a MySpace account. You know, today there might be 10 or 12 or 50 social media platforms, but that wasn't the case then. But she didn't remember whether she did or not. It's just not credible to me. But she says she didn't write the post. She didn't know about it before all this happened. So if she knew about it, where was it posted? Well, it must have been posted originally on MySpace. And then maybe picked up put other places. I don't know. It's just not credible that she doesn't remember that. If it wasn't a race war, if it wasn't hate-driven, was all this about money? When Sherry vanished, Keith set up a GoFundMe account. On November 7th, 2016, a campaign update was written on the GoFundMe campaign page by Keith that read, Thank you all so much for your donations. I'm very happy that the Papini family asked me 
to help get this GoFundMe account established. Your generosity, concern, and prayers are very much appreciated by the Papini family. And I'm sure it was. There was $49,070 in that account. On December 6th of 2016, days after she was recovered, Keith started to use the money from the GoFundMe account for the first time. He was in charge of the funds, and he wrote a check in the amount of $31,818.13 from the account to himself. He then signed the check and deposited it into his personal bank account via a mobile deposit on the same day. Now, it was intended for the Papini family. I'm not saying that there was something wrong with him doing that. I'm just saying he did. He also wrote a check that same day for $1,160.06 to Sherry's account. She endorsed it and deposited it in her personal account. He used $8,212 to make payments toward his personal credit cards. On December 13th of that year, she spent approximately $3,053 to pay off her personal credit cards. Now, the remaining amount of funds that he withdrew from the GoFundMe account were transferred into Husband and Papini's personal account and were spent on personal expenses. In addition to the GoFundMe account, on November 28, 2016, Papini applied to the California Victim Compensation Board. This is a board that provides financial assistance to victims of violent crimes. And in the application, a series of questions were asked to determine the eligibility of the victim. And her request for victim assistance funding caused approximately 35 payments totaling $30,000 to be issued by mail. Some went to her therapist. Some went to the ambulance provider that transported her after her return on Thanksgiving Day. Now, things don't always happen for one reason. I mean, that makes a good, clean story if they happen for one reason. But there are often multiple reasons why people might do things. They might do them for attention. They might do them for money. They might do them for revenge. There are lots of things that can motivate people to perpetrate some kind of scam or fraud or ruse. Money can certainly be a motivator. We see it in crimes, even involving marriage and relationships all the time. You think back to the horrible story of Chris Watts, the family annihilator that murdered his pregnant wife and two precious, precious young daughters. We covered that story in detail, met with his wife's parents, and had to share with them some of the facts of the case when it came out what actually happened. I flew to Pinehurst in Carolina to sit down with these wonderful people. One of the questions that I got a lot is, if he didn't, want to be there, if he wanted out, why not just divorce them? Why not just divorce his wife? Why not just even abandon the family? Just walk out. 
He didn't have to murder them all. Why do that? As insufficient as it sounds, he wanted a clean slate. He didn't want to pay alimony. He didn't want to pay child support. He didn't want to divide his assets in half. He didn't want the expense of lawyers in court. I dealt with one story where a man was accused of drowning his wife in the bathtub. One day, had a yard sale of all of her things the next day and moved his girlfriend in that afternoon. And you think, come on, Dr. Phil, people can't be that dumb. (laughs) Oh, yes, they can be. When people are narcissistic and hedonistic, they cannot see around corners. They see things only from their point of view. They don't read the room. They don't ask themselves, how am I going to explain this? Because they think they are so above the fray that no one will question them that it will just go off without a hitch. Now, you think, okay, so Sherry Papini got $50,000 from GoFundMe and $30,000 from the California Victim Impact Fund, so $80,000. Would you spend $80,000 to take a beating like she apparently sustained? Do you think that far ahead? Did it get out of hand? Did she expect that she was going to have a movie made? That she was going to be Gone Girl 2? That this was going to be some big ticket to fame? Who knows what was in her mind? But I can tell you that there was money involved. I can tell you there was a racist post that was found under her name, whether she wrote it or she didn't. Was it all an axe to grind? Was this just a play for attention? I can tell you it is certainly a very layered story that we're going to have to unpack. And the explanation is still full of holes. Coming up next week, investigators get their answers. And it's Sherry who hands them the smoking gun. I'm going to tell you what they found that proved Sherry was the real-life gone girl. It's going to all come clear. That's next week on Mystery and Murder. Analysis by Dr. Phil.